0: Welcome to Closing Time, conversations on the legal and technical aspects of commercial real estate, presented by Capital Rivers, the industry's leading disruptor. Our host for this episode, Scott Toussaint. We're here today with Sean Dillon and we've just got a discussion that we're going to try and uh, share some thoughts from a couple of real estate lawyers on some commercial real estate topics of interest that we think the audience will find uh, hopefully uh, useful and interesting. Just kind of uh, frame it as an outline, we want to give a few thoughts on the COVID situation that we've all lived through the last year and how that relates to commercial real estate Just a couple of thoughts on that. And then we want to get into some underrated or what you might call hidden hidden issues in commercial real estate leases. And then again, that same general concept of underrated or hidden issues in commercial purchase and sale agreements. First of all, on the COVID pandemic... Sean, in your practice, have you found anything to be of particular interest or usefulness or topics that have come up frequently or um, just things that have been more relevant to people in in the wake of the last 12 months and with regard to commercial real estate?
1: Sure. Yes. It's hard to believe it's been 12 months since the pandemic started. But, uh, you know, I remember in the early on and last March, last April, one of the biggest issues that came up at that point, uh, there was a lot of discussion on force majeure. You know, what, what is force majeure? Does it apply? Do tenants not need to pay rent as a result of the pandemic and so forth? Uh, so that was a big topic in the beginning of the uh, pandemic. And then it kind of started dying down, though. I think the typical lawyer response is it depends, right? That's our favorite response, because it usually does depend. It's true. So virtually every commercial lease, almost all of them, will have some kind of language regarding force majeure, and the definition of that—what what does that mean—is it varies from lease to lease.
0: Isn't the key the key I've found is that people are—I mean, force majeure comes up in all kinds of contexts, and the irony is that the one context that's usually excluded, um, where force majeure does not forgive the performance of of an obligation under a lease is the payment of rent.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's uh,
0: what people that are generally looking for it to give them uh, forgiveness of rent. And I, ironically, that doesn't tend to, to help them.
1: Absolutely correct. Because you could spend all the time looking at the first step, which is, Hey, does this current event fall within the definition of uh, force majeure in my lease? So, you know, you can get creative and, you know, figure out ways to fit it in there. But, Then step number two is even if you qualify uh, the current pandemic as uh, an event of force majeure under your lease language, usually most commercial leases will have explicit language saying, hey, even if there's an event of force majeure, like you said, it does not excuse the uh, payment of rent. Uh, It may excuse other obligations, such as I know you guys deal with a lot of retail leases uh, and a lot of retail leases have a continuous operation language. Right. where a retail tenant must operate continuously because the landlord wants traffic driven to the center. So an obligation like that may be excused, but that's a result of force majeure. But the payment of rent is usually always carved out as not being excused.
0: Yeah, I think people just think of it, it, it might be a magic bullet. And uh, you sort of think of a pandemic as being a quote unquote, act of God. That you know your business is closed, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it it usually doesn't fit under the definition to begin with because generally it's not, it's it's delaying. It's the question is does is a performance delayed for a legitimate purpose covered by force majeure and that doesn't really fall into the the monetary obligation realm anyway. And as you said, uh, typically landlords are clever enough to put in language that explicitly excludes the payment of rent from from coverage of the force, majeure provision, which makes it a moot point. Correct. I think what's interesting, and I, th- I think probably in the coming months, we'll see more and more case law coming out, interpreting leases. I think I've seen at least one case where a court... Was very favorable to a tenant in a claim under the pandemic argument to a surprising degree. And I think maybe we'll get more and more clarity, you know, over the next 12 months, because maybe people have worked out things to date. Maybe the wheels of justice haven't um, haven't fully turned yet in deciding case law regarding the pandemic. I think eventually we'll probably see some relatively clear case law on this issue. I think one one thing people just that are listening, that might be tenants that are behind the eight ball uh, due to the pandemic, there are some common law theories that could be useful, things like frustration of purpose, where you could argue that the pandemic has really destroyed the underlying purpose of your lease to begin with. And so you might be able to creatively argue to a court or even just to a, to your landlord in uh, maybe a, a nicely crafted letter that uh, the pandemic has frustrated the purpose of your lease, or at least it has temporarily. And so the obligations really of both parties during the pandemic or during some government mandated closure has been frustrated and the obligations are relieved legally because of that. So I think there are creative arguments that could be out there other than force majeure that people should be exploring. Anyway, another topic that I just want to briefly touch on is business interruption insurance, because I know that's kind of been something people have talked about. It's gotten some media attention. The problem with, with utilizing business interruption insurance is a portion or a, a, I'm not an insurance expert, so I'm not sure how to even describe it. Precisely, correctly, but it's it's tied to your property damage insurance that one party or the other, if not both, under the lease carries, protecting against things like fire and flood. And there's a business interruption element to that policy. In in a lot of cases, maybe even most cases in commercial leases, the, the problem with using that for the the pandemic, it sounds appropriate and useful to that business interruption insurance oh well my business was interrupted so my business interruption insurance must cover my damages from my business being interrupted but the problem is that it's it gets triggered by damage to the property that you're that you're leasing and unless you're very creative or have a very forgiving court or maybe you're in the unlikely event your insurer wants to be generous your property was not damaged by the pandemic The virus didn't harm the property it didn't burn down your building it didn't flood it it didn't you know it wasn't smoke damage you can try and get get creative but basically business interruption insurance and this is where i do think i I may have seen a a case that ruled in the uh, in the favor of the insured in enforcing a business interruption policy so it's like anything, like Sean said at the beginning, it depends. There's always a possibility of creative arguments. The facts the facts are always extremely germane in the outcome of any legal, legal situation. But business interruption insurance, by and large, is probably not going to help you um, unless you get very creative or, or have a very generous to your position corp that you are arguing in front of. So I just wanted to touch on that. The next topic I wanted to get into was commercial real estate lease issues that tend to be overlooked as not being so important, but in reality, as uh, as lawyers practicing in this area, Sean and I know that not to be the case, and we do want to address them and, and just be useful to the audience by pointing out those a couple issues that we just identified prior to this so Sean, do you want to, if you want to hit on the first one, the, the tenants financial reporting obligations?
1: Yes, absolutely. So uh, these are me and Scott could probably talk about this stuff for hours and hours and uh, <laughs> have bullet points that just go on and on. So we just picked out a couple kind of randomly uh, three issues to talk about. Doesn't mean that these issues are necessarily the most important. Uh, we just kind of picked out three issues that for discussion purposes. So like uh, Scott said, the first one is tenants, financial reporting obligations. And this is, we're talking about uh, commercial leases here. So, and again, you know, you have to look at the language of the lease, uh, as far as whether there is existing financial reporting obligations for a tenant and uh, whether the landlord has a right to demand financials uh, already. And some leases that right may be specified in the lease especially if it's a lease that is, uh, for example, like a a lease that has a percentage clause, percentage rent clause in it, will usually have uh, an obligation for the tenant report, at least their gross sales. But, uh, you know, you'll find that in uh, mall leases and stuff like that. Uh, Usually it's more prevalent in mall leases.
0: Yeah. And the context is, yeah, as you said, the the sales, sales reporting and, yeah, speak to the context John of when when a landlord might want to get either sales reporting or get the actual financial statements from their tenants other than the fact that they can request financial statements from a tenant prior to the lease being signed because obviously the tenant wants to cooperate otherwise the landlord right. can choose not to sign the lease with them but when might you want to compel the tenant to give you their their sales numbers or their financial statements when you don't otherwise have the right to demand them.
1: Correct. So if you if a landlord doesn't have a right to demand uh, sales figures or financials per the lease, I think a time that where a landlord may want that is when a tenant is requesting financial relief or some kind of rent concession or uh, you know yeah. se- some kind of uh, accommodation or rent rent deferral, rent abatement under their lease then I think it makes sense for a landlord, you know, in in order to consider a request to want financials, to ensure that the request is justified and supported.
0: Yeah, going back to COVID being a good example.
1: Correct, exactly. So uh, I I think the last 12 months is a very uh, prime example of that, where uh, I think a lot of landlords were being approached for, uh, you know, by tenants for a rent deferral, rent abatement and so forth. And I think that's an important time to uh, for a landlord to consider. Landlords should be sympathetic, but they should also, also verify, you know, is this tenant actually having uh, the financial difficulty that they're claiming they're having? Uh, and that might be a time where uh, a landlord may request financials in uh, looking at the request for financial relief. And at that point, if they enter into a lease amendment or something, they may want to add that. As an ongoing right to collect that kind of information to verify that the tenant is uh, essentially still having some issues, or if they're out of the woods, it's important for the landlord to have that right.
0: Yep. No, I know absolutely that's a great example. I know another one that we get into as developers at Capital Rivers, we might be interested in marketing a property for sale and any prospective buyers are going to be very interested to know the, the financial uh, quote-unquote situation of the tenant that is leasing the property that we may be marketing. So they may want to know what's the financial position of this tenant right now. Prospective buyers always want to know that. That's, that's key. If you have maybe a publicly traded chain tenant in your space, then those financials are available they're publicly available uh, through the SEC, but if it's, uh, let's say it's a mom-and-pop tenant or it's maybe it's a subsidiary because you know a lot of these large chains, uh, maybe they're a publicly traded parent company, but the actual tenant uh, entity that signs your lease might be uh, kind of an offshoot or somebody who is not the actual publicly traded entity. And so a prospective buyer might say, well, who is this? That actually leases your space, you don't have a corporate guarantee. This is a critical component to a prospective buyer and the amount that somebody's willing to pay for your space. So if you have the ability to compel your tenant to provide you financials to a potential buyer or a potential lender for a refi. Um, would be another example that can be very valuable to you because now now it's not a mysterious situation to a prospective buyer or prospective lender you can require your tenant to provide you with uh, with financial statements that hopefully will indicate that this is a a credit worthy tenant mom-and-pop situation anything that's not a publicly traded entity that you're leasing from, unless you have a guarantee from a publicly traded entity, it's very valuable to be able to require financial statements from that entity that you're leasing to for the benefit of a prospective buyer and you can get into uh, sales reporting. So the actual sales generated, gross revenue generated by that tenant at that location kind of goes hand in hand with that. They wanna know the prospective buyers, prospective lenders are gonna be very interested to know the viability, the success of that business at that location for obvious reasons, because um, if they're not successful there, even though maybe it's a, a chain with 20 locations, Maybe they're going to close down this one and go dark. There's all kinds of implications from the lack of success of a particular location, which can be evidenced better than anything by the, uh, by the sales reporting, the, the reporting of, of sales generated from that location.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think that's really important in, in those kind of situations for lenders and prospective buyers, they may want to know the financials or at least the sales per square foot uh, can sometimes be a good measure for uh, prospective buyers of the viability of a, something like a grocery store, anchored shopping center, or some, so forth. So that's a really good point. And uh, I think um, some tenants may be more willing to share gross revenue figures than financial statements. Uh, so it becomes important in those situations to define uh, you know properly define what's uh, the financial reporting obligations. Is it just gross sales? Is it actual balance sheet and financial statements? How often can a landlord request them at any time, or does the tenant have an obligation to report them once a year? So those are important things that need to be defined properly in the lease. But that's a really good point, and especially prevalent when, like you said, when it's a not a national, uh, not a publicly traded company, and the information is not readily available through the SEC. So um, that's a very good point.
0: Yep. And, uh, you know, as lawyers, you and I, Sean, know that the details also matter and things like, uh, is there a confidentiality obligation imposed on the landlord or can it be imposed through the landlord on the recipient of the financial information um, so a good, sophisticated tenant will, will probably want to protect the confidentiality of the information being provided if they're willing to, to agree to provide the information in the first place. They may want to compel the landlord or any recipient uh, as a condition to receiving the information to sign a commercially reasonable confidentiality agreement. I think I've even seen a lease that had um, an exhibit to the lease that was the actual form of confidentiality agreement that would be required to be signed by any recipient of the financial information. So uh, there's all levels of sophistication you can get to. You can get into the nature of the financials. Do they have to be prepared in accordance with uh, generally accepted accounting procedures, Gap does that to be prepared uh, in accordance with GAP. Do they need to be audited? Do they need to be certified by an officer of the tenant entity? If you think it through, there's a lot of relevant, significant detail that you can put into the financial reporting covenant in a lease. And you know, it's ironic. But most you know, I think nine people out of ten, maybe even in the industry, don't even think of financial statements or financial reporting as as being much of an issue in a lease you could really make it a significant thing and depending on the circumstances it uh it's important i mean everything's dependent on the circumstances and in some circumstances it it could become a uh a very important covenant section of your lease so uh we we've belabored it but i think it it bared some belaborings
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no, it's a really important point. Uh, like you said, uh, it, it can, once you really get into the details, you, you can really go on and on. And, uh, and I think a lot of landlords and tenants, they don't really think of it as a big issue, but uh, it could have uh, consequences that should be thought through. So the example you gave of the confidentiality is, you know, very important, especially to the tenant that's going to be giving these financials. Like, you know, where are these going? Are they going to be, you know, who's going to see these? And
0: yeah, some tenants won't care. Some tenants will care very much. So. Correct. Correct. Thank you for downloading Closing Time, presented by Capital Rivers Commercial. If you're interested in partnering with us, visit CapitalRivers.com to learn more. And follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram for the latest updates and real estate opportunities.